Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. On the question of where is Mark Zuckerberg, um, Elisa, Axios reporting this morning that he might break his silence within the next 24 hours. And my question is whether it's a a fluffy webcast about making the world a better place and his commitment to do that, or whether he will actually sit in front of a reporter and take some serious questions in a way that he hasn't done for a long time. Or whether he will pledge to go to Washington, D.C. and testify in front of Congress, which could end up being a tipping point. Uh, The other thing I'm looking at to see whether it is a tipping point is whether we have reached the level at which any additional Fed rate hikes actually lead to a tightening of financial conditions. Because, John, as you were pointing out before uh, wisely, so far, rate hikes have actually led to a loosening of financial conditions. Joining us now, John Sylvia. He is joining us from snowy Boston, and he <laughs> is uh, very proud to be here. Uh, thank you so much, Chief Economist thank you, Lisa. Uh, at Wells Fargo. Um, so let's talk about that. Have we reached the tipping point? Uh, no. If you look at the Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index, you'll see that the improvement over the last six months to a year in the equity market, as well as the weaker dollar, has really meant that the financial conditions index is easier today than it was six months ago. So if the Fed were to raise rates in March and June, I don't think we're we're reaching that tipping point. Now, clearly, you know, given that your dad was a mathematician, Lisa, um, he'll explain to you that these linear projections oftentimes don't work out in a nonlinear world. And so what we see in 1987, 1994, 1995, and again, 2005, 2007, yes, the Fed can continue to to project raising interest rates 25 basis points every other meeting. But at some point, there will be a challenge in the marketplace. Are we anywhere near to that? No, I think at this point in time now. This this year, you got two and a half to three percent growth in the economy. It may be uh, maybe 2019, Jonathan. Yeah. When the Treasury continues to increase its financing of the deficit, that you may see some additional pressure on the economy. We're trying to understand the relationship between unemployment and inflation, and trying to get some insight from Chairman Powell on on his thoughts of that. The the estimated equilibrium for unemployment seems to be marked to market at the Federal Reserve. Um, it just drifts lower because unemployment <laughs> is just drifting lower. Do they have a clue, John? No. Uh, I, I think the markets themselves don't have a clue. It's been a, quite a surprise that the wage numbers have not increased in line with the decline in the unemployment for the last year or so. We see total labor compensation rising. But no, I mean, a lot of the discussion about the flat, the flat Phillips curve, um, the very, very you know, slight slope to it. It's just totally up in the air. We don't know what the equilibrium interest rate is in terms of the federal funds rate. Yeah. And you're right. Uh, there's this problem in economics that the latest data dictates the equilibrium. All right. I want to push back a little bit. Yes, you're please. saying we haven't reached that point where you're going to get tightening financial conditions in response to rate hikes and that we're nowhere near that. And yet LIBOR is the big story, uh, tightening, uh, rising rapidly to the highest level since 2008. And it's de facto a tightening of financial conditions. What do you make of that? Well, it is. Uh, I think when you're looking at the short interest rate, you are seeing a tightening in financial conditions. 
But surprisingly, when you broaden that out to, again, look at the Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index, and you look at the dollar and equity markets and the ability of corporations to finance, especially bonds, right. it's still pretty easy. All right. So how far does the Fed have to hike before it reaches that tipping point? I mean, what's the, what's the number? Um, I think, again, when you're looking at March and June, that's a layup. But I would say the September and December moves are much more challenging. Yeah. Because at that point in time, you do have the Fed shrinking its balance sheet and the Treasury increasing its financing. That, to me, is a very, very challenging period. So the second half of this year could be uh, challenging in some financial markets. And the extra layer to that as well, John, is to to some extent, maybe even a greater extent, the ECB has provided cover for them over the last couple of years. It's one of the reasons financial conditions have eased. Great point. Well, again, one of the challenges, you know, Lisa and Jonathan, is that the, the ECB buys corporate debt. Yeah. And so when you think about corporate bond issuance in the United States, it's a lot easier when you've got a central bank buying in Europe. John Sylvia, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It's really a pleasure thank having you. you. We'll be checking back with you to see whether you've changed that uh, tipping point uh, soon. John Sylvia, Wells Fargo Chief Economist, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. What does Facebook have to do to keep traders from continuing to sell? Answering that question, Eileen Burbage, partner at Passion Capital, also known as Tech City UK. Uh, she is the chair there. Uh, and Eileen joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us, Eileen. So what does Facebook have to do to adequately respond to this crisis and uh, prompt traders to buy again? Yeah, I think first and foremost, they're going to have to ride it out a little bit. What will help is if they start to get in front of the messaging and in front of the information disclosure. And that's, that's I think, been a real problem. Their response to what's been happening now for the last few days has been largely one of silence or just saying uh, playing the victim and not coming from, you know, Mark Zuckerberg himself or even Sheryl Sandberg. And I think that's what worrying investors a bit. Um, I would assume that they want to hear from those two directly, and they also want to um, be slightly reassured that this isn't going to bring about um, over-the-top regulation now as a consequence. And I would guess that those two things need to be addressed ASAP. Eileen, we forget actually how young Mark Zuckerberg still is. Um, you've worked with so many young tech leaders, tech CEOs. He's shown a phenomenal ability to orientate this company to areas of growth. What he did with mobile a number of years ago was very, very impressive. But this is his first real crisis that he's had to deal with as the CEO of Facebook in terms of the PR around the company. Eileen, are we seeing some immaturity from Mark Zuckerberg at this point? necessarily think that's the case. I mean, I think obviously he's got to continue to develop, but I recall years ago when, you know, he used to get criticized for wearing his hoodies on stage. And, and that's when the market sort of thought, really, is this guy going to be able to take the company public and yeah. how is he going to develop? And I think he's, he's demonstrated a really, really great um, wisdom and being very judicious and surrounding himself with really strong advisors or people such as Sheryl Sandberg or others who can complement him really well. And I think this is going to be a team effort. It's not just him, but he's, he's, you know, he needs to be advised. He needs to be fully briefed. He needs uh, to own uh, and, and understand that he's 
as accountable uh, or more accountable than anybody else for this and to be able to sort of communicate that in a really passionate and effective way. Well, Eileen, strategically, yes. I mean, he's shown himself to be phenomenal. I was one of those individuals that also questioned what this gentleman was doing in a hoodie on a road show to take a company public and he's proved everybody wrong. He's proved everyone wrong with his M&A strategy as well. But on this particular instance, he's been completely tone deaf to what's been happening over the last 12 months, hasn't he? Uh... It does seem that his, it, that he took it for granted, actually, or he didn't realize or appreciate how big it was going to get. Yes, I think that's the case. And I think that's because, you know, the company position is probably one that, right, at the time that this happened, we had T's and C's that allowed this. But look, we changed those. Uh, subsequently. Um, it wasn't necessarily a leak as such or a breach as such. It was, you know, one person making use of our APIs, sharing information which they shouldn't have done with another party. And so they kind of had a defensive approach or response, as in sort of very technically, yeah. you know, we don't think we did anything wrong. And I think that is a problem. You're right. That is tone deaf. He needs to come out in front now. His whole team needs to come out and sort of acknowledge that whether it was technically, uh, you know, against their rules or not, or in any violation or anything, it's not what people want uh, the social network to be used for. You know, Eileen, yesterday we were talking about regulation, and this was sinking a number of tech shares, in particular Twitter, uh, with shares falling more than 10%. Uh, but today it looks like an increasingly Facebook-specific story because Facebook shares are continuing to decline while Twitter is popping in pre-market trade uh, almost 2%. So what does that say to you about sort of the delineation here between the uh, companies that are responding to these things well and those that don't and uh, and sort of independent, really, of even regulatory action here? Yeah, I do think it does demonstrate that investors and customers more more to the point, really want to hear about the company ethos. They want to understand what the mindset is behind the company. They want to hear about their values, and they want to understand that executives are mindful of their sort of consumer's point of view. And I think Twitter has handled that well. Of course, they had less uh, to sort of fall or to sort of uh, stay off. But Facebook really hasn't done anything, and that is a, a massive problem. Yeah, Eileen, at the centre of this is this business model for Facebook, where essentially you get to use the platform for free, but the currency that they charge is your personal data, and they use that personal data to generate ad revenue. Ultimately, that's the core of the business model, Eileen. Is that business model being challenged? Is there an existential threat, or is it too early to say that? I think I think it's too early to say that. I think it's an age-old uh, business model, and I don't think it's going to go away. Uh, however, will the company start to rely on or become stronger because of alternative business models? Yes, I think so. You know, it started to make money off of other things that are not just advertising-based, whether they're transactional-related or even financial services-like. Um, and I think that's going to continue to be more and more important. But I do think advertising is here to stay. And I think the point about the regulatory um, situation is that we're in a new kind of operating dynamic and there's there's got to be new rules around how aggressive or how deeply one can go. You know, Eileen, I just want to take a little bit of a broader look at sort of whether this marks in some ways the peak of the massive run up in tech shares and the incredible rally there, uh, just because at this point they're being treated like real companies, not just unicorns or, uh, you know, all growth, all potential and, uh, and nothing to stop them. I mean, are we are we seeing a sort of a, a tipping point here? 
I mean, I think it's a good sort of reset. It's a good time to take stock and to sort of understand more so for the executive teams of these companies that they have a great responsibility, right, to the customers that they service. And they have a huge responsibility uh, as to how they impact maybe even geopolitical events and whether or not they're acting transparently enough um, and being upfront enough about what their business models are, how that might be, you know, used by malicious characters or other people that, you know, they're not there to service, but who could take advantage of what they offer. I think that's absolutely true. Well, and I say this in light of a number of initial public offerings from the tech companies. We're finally seeing uh, these uh, companies go public. And there is a question uh, that one guest on radio yesterday was raising, which is, does this mark sort of the peak where some of these founders want to cash in and get out? Um, And I'm wondering, you know, uh, from from an advisory standpoint, is that the mindset of some of these uh, founders? I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, perhaps I'm too much of an idealist, but then again, I am an investor, so I'm going to be an optimist. But I don't think um, founders start businesses, first of all, to, to necessarily help you know, enable nefarious sort of uh, actors. They don't start uh, companies or platforms to try and you know, help other people manipulate them. And so there, I think these take them by surprise. And that is part of why there's such a backlash and a reaction now against Zuckerberg or against the company Facebook. It's sort of like, really, did you not, you know, expect that this might happen or did you not consider your responsibility in trying to manage this kind of situation? Um, But then even when it does happen, I don't think, um, you know, the strong entrepreneurs are looking to get out then. I I think, you know, if anything, there might be a sort of um, a battening down the hatches, you know, to remind people, no, the reason I said about doing this or that we as a team wanted yeah. to do this because of all the positive you know, benefits that we can bring, whether they're commercial or otherwise. And I don't think they look to get out. Eileen, it's great to catch up with you. It's been way too long. Thank you very much for joining us on Bloomberg Radio. Eileen Burbage, who I haven't been able to speak to for a long, long time, but is such an insightful voice in the world of technology, partner of Passion Capital, also the Tech City UK chair, HM Treasury. I want to just pick up on the weaker dollar uh, versus its peers today. I'm sure that comes as sweet satisfaction to a lot of people out there who are uh, bearish on the dollar going forward. But what happens if they end up being wrong? Elsa Linos joins us now. She's RBC Global Head of FX Strategy. Uh, Elsa, thank you so much for being with us. Arguably, the bet that the dollar will continue to weaken is the most crowded trade out there right now, at least according to some analysts. I'm wondering, uh, do you think that the likelihood of a reversal of some sort of strengthening uh, actually is getting more realistic? Yeah, it's definitely one of the most crowded trades out there um, and the most popular amongst the majors. And it's interesting because the dollar, having started the year very badly in January, hasn't actually been going anywhere through February and March. Um, and I think the longer you see this position stall, um, the more likely it is people start questioning that very bearish consensus. What's the story that backs up the dollar weakness? Are we looking at capital flows? Because rate differentials certainly also for the last year or so don't really explain the move. So there's a number of reasons that um, people have pointed to. Um, 
none of them particularly well-founded. Um, there's been a lot of talk around, you know, when front-end rate differentials didn't work, people looked at the long end, and then that stopped working, so people started scrambling around for other um, relationships. At the moment, there's a lot of focus on the two-fives part of the curve, um, and the relationship with the euro-dollar, even that now seems to be breaking down. Um, so that's one thing, you know, people are kind of constantly looking for new rate relationships that may explain it. Um, the second one that gets a lot of traction with some people is this idea that with the U.S. budget deficit blowing out, we're going to go back into a twin deficit world like in the early 2000s, and that means dollar weakness across the board. And of course, there are some key differences between now and then, um, namely the fact that the private sector is not in deficit as it was back then. And so you can go through these reasons one by one and start really questioning whether or not they're really going to hold in practice. You know, Elsa, one thing that I'm struck by is that the economic data in Europe, which many people have had really high hopes for, has been disappointing again and again with each additional reading. And I, I wonder at what point this really becomes a, a Europe versus U.S. story if those disappointments continue. Uh, could we just see a de facto strengthening in the dollar that could potentially be disruptive uh, in response? So that's right. You know, you tend to see that with economic um, expectations and surprises, that they build up as economists have underestimated the strength of a recovery, and you get all these positive surprises accumulating, and then expectations catch up to the reality and usually overshoot, um, and then you start getting the negative surprises. And that's certainly what we're seeing at the moment in Europe. You know, we had a very long run of positive economic surprises on our indicators. Um, around 33 out of 34 weeks were positive. And that really came to an end a few weeks ago. And since then, um, we've seen PMIs disappointing. We're going to get another batch of PMIs tomorrow. The hard data um, are pointing to maybe a bit of softening momentum as well. And I think it really calls into question this thesis that, you know, the U.S. is slowing down and the rest of the world is still picking up at the same time. I just don't think that's validated by the data. Yeah. Uh, one thing I, I want to broaden out and talk about inherent leverage in the system tied to this bet on a weaker dollar. We see this with the emerging markets and how popular uh, they've become. Investors going in unhedged, uh, even though it really is a currency bet. Um has the market ever been this levered to the bet that the dollar will continue to weaken? Um, it's certainly been a while since consensus was this strong against the dollar. Um, you know, when you look at emerging markets, typically EM bets will always be on hedge because, of course, the cost of hedging is so high. Um, but it's unusual for people to be unhedged in DM. Um, as well. So, you know, when you're actually paid to hedge European exposure or Japanese exposure at the moment as a U.S. investor, um, to take the decision to be unhedged, it means that you're actually giving up uh, a bit of carry that you could pick up. And so that's where I would look for the first signs of the dollar bearish consensus cracking. It's really against the developed markets where you may see that falling first. That's a really, really interesting point, Al. So I do want to pivot towards the Federal Reserve a little bit later today. What are you looking for from Chairman Powell, and what would you like the first question to be for him? <laughs> um, you know, the, the testimony may not be that different um, to what we heard in his semi-annual testimony. You know, the press conference may not be that different. Um, there's a lot of focus, clearly, on what the median dots are going to show, um, although the hurdle for the 
median shifting from three to four dots for 2018 is, is probably fairly high. Um, I think there'll be quite a bit of focus on the language around the, um, the statement. You know, what will they say about the balance of risks? A lot of people have been focusing on the Brainard speech from a few weeks ago and the fact that growth is expected to be higher this year and next um, with the tax cuts coming through. Um, and so there'll be a lot of attention on the, the language around the, the decision. So are those forecasts for growth to pick up this year and next anchored in hope more than anything else? Because I don't see a pickup in the first quarter here in the United States. You know, for better or for worse, I think most central bankers still rely heavily on their traditional um, economic models. Um, And typically when you see fiscal stimulus of the size that we've seen, um, you'd expect that to lead to to higher short-term growth. Um, It's it remains to be seen how long that will take to feed through. It sometimes takes a little bit longer than expected. I mean, we've certainly seen that in other countries. Canada, for example, voted through quite a large um, uh, fiscal leasing package a few years back. And it took a while for that to come through in the data, but it does tend to come through eventually. Just a real quick, I'd love to get your sense on the just going back to the dollar weakness. And I wonder if how much the Fed is sort of watching this as something that's easing financial conditions. I wonder to what degree that reflects political risk uh, and what degree uh, that reflects the deficit that you were talking about earlier. That's a good point, because I think if you look at traditional explanatory factors for effects, whether that's rates or capital flows or anything else, um, it's hard to fully explain dollar weakness on those alone. And so some people have pointed to this unexplained gap and and said it reflects some kind of negative political risk premium, um, rightly or wrongly. Um, The problem with calling it that is that it's very difficult to uh, identify whether it should grow or or reduce and and what the mechanism is behind it. Um, I think the safest thing to say is that you know, we are certainly seeing much more conventional policy from this administration. but whether it's tariffs and the response from China or whether it's um, the approach to, to tax cuts or anything else, yeah. the economic transmission mechanism should actually be the same it's always been. And uh, easier fiscal policy means tighter monetary. Asalinos, it's been great to catch up with you. Joining us from the City of London, the RBC Global Head of FX Strategies. Pam, there was a headline that crossed this morning that I found really interesting. It's not just Facebook. Big tech revolt has begun. This according to Namira currency strategist Bilal Hafiz. I want to bring in Stephanie Miller, Height Capital Markets Senior Analyst, joining us from our 99.1 studios in Washington, D.C. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us. Do you agree? Do you think that there is some big revolution against technology companies as we know them now that is just in its uh, infancy? Well, thanks for having me. And I love that question because it reminds me of something I read about a month ago, an interview with Bill Gates, when he basically said that that very thing was probably coming. And and he, if anyone would know what it means to be a technology company that's targeted by regulators. And he basically uh, intimated that the way that current big technology is certainly uh, social media companies specifically were are acting and the way that consumer data is or isn't protected with sort of begging for a regulatory intervention. Stephanie, do you think that there's a conversation or a meeting going on at Facebook where someone is asking, okay, how much is this going to cost us and when this is going to go away? 
Absolutely. But I think it probably goes even further because it's cost them quite a bit already in the market. I think it's at maybe close to $50 billion now in market value loss. Yeah, the and amount of Tesla's market capitalization, right? In two days. Exactly. In two days. And so the question is, has to be beyond what regulators will make Facebook do or make some of these other big tech companies like Twitter uh do, but more what they should be doing themselves to self-regulate. And I work at a brokerage firm. We are a member of FINRA. We have our own self-regulator. It is not uncommon to uh, have an industry regulate itself. So whether it is a industry-wide regulation or a company internal best practices, I think they have to be very seriously thinking about what this means for them going forward. So Stephanie, as we talk, Facebook shares down nearly 2% another day of deepening declines. I want to go back to what you were saying uh, with respect to what Bill Gates noted, that he expected a backlash. And I'm wondering, what is going to be the shape of this, right? I mean, are we going to see just uh, losses across the board for tech companies? Are we going to see some kind of forced self-regulatory agency. What do you think are the steps in the next few months? I think the immediate steps that are going to be most visible to the public will be hearings in Congress. I think it's unlikely Congress is going to be in a position this year to actually legislate. Uh, There are a lot of reasons, compelling reasons for members from both sides of the aisle to be tough on Facebook. But also, once you actually start limiting Facebook's ability to do business, you start impacting companies in all jurisdictions, all congressional jurisdictions who rely on Facebook themselves for their own bottom line. So it gets really complicated really fast. So I think the easiest path forward for Congress right now are really tough hearings. On the, on the regulatory side, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, is already announced, or they didn't announce it, I should say, uh, but someone um, told the press that they are undergoing an investigation themselves, which could come with a fine on Facebook. Was this not the only companies that are affected by this, right? I mean, you have data breaches that affect not only areas of the U.S. government, but also companies such as Equifax. What has been the response there? It's a great question. And Equifax, uh, the type of data that was was breached in that instance was uh, social security numbers and and things that result in in, um, identity theft. Um, And so far, there has been no legislative reaction to Equifax uh, by members of Congress other than a hearing. And from the FTC, the FTC is uh, doing its own investigation, which could result in a fine. But my colleague who follows this closely, doesn't expect that to occur until this summer at the absolute soonest. So why would this breach at Facebook be considered more serious than the acquisition of people's social security numbers and in many cases credit card information, credit history, as well as financial data? Why would uh, the personal data that you enter that was used supposedly to create these psychographic profiles, why would that be more uh, egregious, let's say, than than sort of having access or, or giving access and not protecting people's personal financial records? I think this is a question that's rooted in politics. And at the end of the day, it will be more egregious if, if people tell members of Congress that it's more egregious. I think the thing that would make, you know, you and me and and our our friends and family really concerned here is if we feel that democracy is being threatened, that tends to rise to sort of a five alarm level, uh, just as bad as identity theft. But when it comes to just this type of data that 
it was uh, leaked by this third party who wasn't even Facebook. Um, it's not the type of data that I think people in and of itself really care about. I think we've known that that social media companies use this data and share this data with marketers, and we are all still participating in social media. You know, Stephanie, I want to pick up on what you said about the political aspect of this Facebook story. So you have uh, Facebook, which has been reticent to anger either the left or the right too much, the right in particular, at a time when Republicans are in Congress and could potentially crack down on them in retaliation as a majority. Uh, and then, you know, you have potential allegations that people saying that uh, this fast Facebook data breach is a threat to democracy are trying to politicize this on the other side by making it a bigger issue than it was. Where do you stand on that? I think, again, the question's going to be is, does that rise to the occasion where those one or both of those issues become something that members of Congress are not allowed to ignore, especially ahead of this November election. Um, and right now, I'm not convinced that I see it trending that way. If Facebook takes some proactive steps to demonstrate that it is taking this seriously. And I think Facebook really faces much more of a reckoning with Wall Street than it does with Washington in this instance. Um, and I, I'm not sure that anything Washington could do uh, could compete with what's already happened uh, in the markets. Just quickly, does this also apply to organizations like LinkedIn, where people put a lot of their personal information online and they think that they are being viewed by legitimate companies for legitimate positions or indeed making legitimate connections? Yes, LinkedIn, I would say Twitter also, and even Google. I think this is where it start, begins to argue for the industry to come together and self-regulate. Yeah. Uh, that is a really long process, I would have to imagine. But you know, another good analog, we talked about Equifax. Uh, the tobacco industry was dragged in front of Congress for their first hearing yeah. in 1994. If you remember that photo on the front page of the New York Times with them all giving testimony saying yeah. that cigarettes don't kill you. And it took 15 years for the federal government to have give itself the authority to even regulate the tobacco industry. So Stephanie Miller, thank you so much for that perspective. It may take a very long time before Congress takes material steps. Stephanie Miller, Height Capital Markets Senior Analyst, thank you for that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.